0: Who's your businesswoman role model? I don't know if you would say this is, I think she's a businesswoman. I would say Beyonce,
1: okay? I think what she stands for, for women as well, and also um, Emma Watson as well. Just really strong people. I love Oprah Winfrey. I know she's a TV personality, but she's still a business person and she's come from next to nothing and built herself up and become this empire.
2: Um, Yes, would definitely be my boss. And um, she does everything, like not afraid to mop the floors, you know, like spend her weekends in the stores. She's still hustling.
0: For We Teach Me, this is the Master's Series, where industry professionals share their secrets to business success. I'm Salfil Shenalmish from Written and Recorded, and I'm a woman running a business. While there are more of us in entrepreneurial leadership and board roles, I've noticed that it's far more common for mediocre men to shout their successes than it is for really successful women to feel comfortable talking about theirs. But we've got two female founders ready to step into the limelight for you. Kara Bradmore started Kalua Jewellery in 2005 to create custom jewellery that fulfils dreams. We were exceptionally lucky that we had a father who really encouraged
1: my sister and I as women to be anything that we wanted to be and it didn't matter if you were a man or a woman and it meant that I actually became one of the first Victorian Scouts, Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts and that was an amazing experience and I
0: didn't even really realise it at the time that it was so forward thinking of my father. We'll hear more from Kara soon. First up, Minnie Latif, founder of Ottoman 3 Brow Bar who wanted to bring beauty rituals of ancient times into modern practice. With three locations across Melbourne, Minnie has successfully brought threading back and saved many a brow. In this fireside chat with We Teach Me's Wayne Lewis, Minnie says there's nothing more powerful than a single woman without a kid.
2: I grew up with parents that always had their own small business, so they were making coffee before it was cool, and they weren't called baristas back then, so we were just working really hard in the takeaway shops, and I honestly grew up really believing that everyone grew up to start their own business. I had no idea that you didn't own your own business when you became an adult. That's quite
3: just, powerful, isn't yeah. it?
2: Yeah. I just thought that's just the way we do it. So. Watching my parents struggle somewhat in takeaway shops and cafes and stuff making a healthy living for us I knew that it could have been done better and more sophisticated So my goal was not to get into the food industry But certainly I was going to run my own business maybe in an industry that I enjoyed which at that time I loved fashion and I loved beauty because I'm a typical girly girl. This is I'm talking 10 years old thinking now and so when I grow up I'll go and probably work for those big corporate companies, learn all the policies and procedures, and then go and start my own business. I knew this as a kid.
3: At 10 years old, were your parents encouraging that as well? Were you expressing some of these views with your parents at that time?
2: Yeah, and they said, you are gonna be a lawyer. That's yeah. what's gonna happen with you. So you're gonna to go to Monash, very specific. We actually, I spoke to my mum about it last night. So I have an e-book and my e-book is called How to Be a Dirty Entrepreneur. and. My mum was a bit taken back. You're not dirty. Why would you call yourself dirty? And I said, no, entrepreneur used to be a dirty word. So when I was 10, if I said to you, mum, I want to open my own business, you would have said, no, you need to be a lawyer, doctor or engineer. Those were the three really respectable career paths that migrants of that period, my parents are from Cyprus, so they had come to Australia to escape the war and to try and have a better life for themselves. So when they ended up having a family themselves, they did very thankless jobs. But they did them so their three children could have an opportunity and in their mind that opportunity is, again, lawyer, doctor, engineer.
3: And then you made that trip over to London, you are working in the agency space, what happened there?
2: So I worked for British Telecom and Lloyds TSB, British Telecom itself is one of the biggest telecommunications companies in the world, so the agencies that we were using, one were world class but also the budgets were just crazy and you're talking about 12, 13 years ago now, so we were launching a website about 14 years ago called BT Vision and my budget was a million dollars then. I still don't have a million dollar budgets, so I got exposed to some great things. But I knew that that was an area that I needed to immerse myself in. There was so much. The corporate world is not something that I desired strongly, but I knew I had to go through it mm-hmm. to gain
3: the insights. the
2: insights. Yeah. Yeah.
3: And what were some of the difficult lessons that you faced in that environment?
2: I think knowing that policies and procedures as boring and as dull as they are, quality control measures, all of those things that really don't excite me are necessary to keep, I guess the word is control. I mean, you could speak to any of my team. They might say to you, oh, Minnie one day makes a decision to go left and the next day it's to go right. I don't call it being indecisive. I'm just forever evolving in my ideas and my processes. But that can be detrimental for a company of, I have just over 30 women working with me. So I could literally change the course of the entire brand in one sentence. Mm -hmm. And that's not healthy. You know, it's fun to watch the chaos. (laughs) We're not gonna do brows today. No, it's not like, not that bad. But it taught me how to be a lot more controlled in the way that I thought, how to deliver. The lessons I learned there is how I actually managed to open my very first brow bar in Maya. I don't think I would have be able to pull that off in 2018, but in 2008 when I contacted Maya, I had no contacts by the way, so I literally know nobody. I always say I'm the most unnetworked, unconnected businesswoman I know. Mm -hmm. I just hustle my way through. So it just is what it is. But I moved back from London and I was like, right, how am I gonna do this now? I know that I need to be in the department stores. I know that that was where the opportunity was. The biggest player is Myers today but anyway I said all right I don't know anyone at Maya so I went on their website and I found this email address it's called info at <laughs> so I emailed them yeah. and I said I have a very important proposition for you but you need to sign this NDA before I release any information so that tone of voice, that the attention. legal, the NDA—it mm-hmm. was just a don't tell anyone, but a rip-off from British Telecom. Mm-hmm. Just changed a few names on there. You know they've got a really good legal team. So does I was this good. go in the ebook? Is this in the day? Uh, not no? that bit, no. but my blog always goes a little into these yeah. stories. So I got a response, I'd say within forty-eight hours, and my store was opened up eight months later.
3: Impressive. Were you always thinking on the grand vision of going national? Or was it case of, okay, right, head down, see how this bar goes? Or was it always thinking? All
2: the way, day one, all the way. i just an all or nothing person. So it was the vision I had at like 10. So It wasn't a brow bar back then, by the way. So when I was seven, my parents took us to our first international trip overseas. We did the UK, we did Cyprus and we also did Turkey. We had family living in Istanbul. So I was seven years old, walked into one of the palaces in Istanbul and I just looked up at this opulent, insanely overdone place and just said to myself, when I grow up, I am going to work in a place that looks like this not live, mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. So this work ethic is being embedded in me from birth because I literally was raised in a milk bar for the first seven years of my life. We lived upstairs and the milk bar was on the bottom. So for me, everything was work, 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 work. Back at seven, I just wanted to work in a palace, essentially. You know, who doesn't, right? So as I got into the corporate world, I knew that I was definitely into beauty. That was something I was just passionate, just personally loved all things beauty. And I realised that there was no hummus, Mums in Australia, which is a uh, Turkish baths, right? There's an opportunity in the Australian market. I am gonna design the country's most finest day spa with an hammam look and feel to it, an ottoman bath look and feel to it. So I was a marketing manager for iSelect, so the iSelect logo that you guys see and the terracotta orange, you know, I picked that. I was in a taxi in Sydney and saw an orange building and said, that's the iSelect logo color so that's how those things happen guys and then Damien Weller who was the is the founder but the CEO at the time I put my resignation in and said all right I'm ready now to move to London and go really write my business plan for this Ottoman day spa that I thought was what it was going to be so when I went to London I wasn't there just to get some corporate experience I was also there to spend a bit of time in Turkey my Turkish is terrible but I wing it all the time and spend some time there and really kind of get understanding of what this spa was going to eventuate into. And I did that. So that's where the aesthetic. So, of course, all of you are going to follow me on Instagram at the end of this to really get an understanding of what the look and feel of my brand is and all that kind of stuff. But the aesthetic side was locked in at that point. The service, what it really is. That came about on my lunch breaks when I was working at British Telecom and jumping on the tube and running to John Lewis at my lunch break to get my nails done and then going, crap, whilst I'm here I'll just run to the other side of the department store and get my eyebrows threaded. So, these things already existed. I am the very first brow bar to open up in Australia in threading ten years ago, but I did not invent Threading. it's been around for thousands of years and I didn't invent it as a concept in a department store. Most of the ideas that most of us have are something that's already kind of been thought about but we reinvent them or we make them contemporary for the audience that we are today. So as I would sit in this tight lunch break period of trying to get my nails done and running across and getting my brows done, I realised, what if we had them combined? Because every three weeks I'm coming to get my nails and my brows done and I just would have saved a little bit more time if they were together. And that's basically how Ottoman 3 came to light. That's the three, every three weeks of coming in and having the service done. We did nails for five years. It really wasn't profitable, fantastic for marketing, fantastic for PR could get any story in the Herald Sun about stuff like that and no one really cared about brows back then but at five years I had to make a call where is the direction of this business now so I decided yeah we're going to grow the brow side because I'm going to start manufacturing brow products. Mm-hmm.
3: And as a woman in business then have you had any challenges as being a female in business or is it close to your advantage?
2: i just going to disappoint everyone and say no. <sighs> That's good, though. I just haven't, not even in my corporate world. Mm -hmm. I just have not experienced it. We talk about it all the time in the office as well. We do have a full female team. It just, personally, I've not experienced it. We do have challenges of having a full female team, though, in our office now for different reasons. Mm Would you like me to expand on that? I'd
3: like you to expand okay. on that, yeah. <laughs> All right. Go for it.
2: This is very cultural, okay? For threading, our brow artists typically come from India for the most part, purely because that's where most of the people have their skill set from. Some from the Middle East, but predominantly from India. So I have about 25 to 28 brow artists at the moment. Many of them are really like being in Australia for less than five years, majority of them, okay? They come from a culture where the man runs the household. So, men ahead of a woman as far as career. So, if the child is sick, guess what the husband does? He's an Uber driver all right so he has more flexibility to go pick up the kid from school if he's called in sick she doesn't have that flexibility she's got to catch two trains and a tram to get to the store but this cultural aspect for us is something that we're constantly battling it's a really difficult one because often she actually is the breadwinner Mm -hmm. or should i say making more money Mm -hmm. in the household we know this because we talk to them very intimately about Mm -hmm. it and trying to empower them to try and give them a voice in their own home to say, look, if the teacher calls and the kid's sick, you have to make a call who goes to pick up that kid. And that kind of, to me, goes back 20, 30 years where you would never expect the husband to leave his corporate job to pick up the kid sick from school, of course the mum would do it. That's a bit backward.
3: Yeah, and it's good that you've got that open relationship with the staff. Is, yeah. yeah,
2: many husbands dislike me.
3: Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> that's all right. At the beginning, because of this culture, this is going back the 10 years, I'd say for the first six months, husbands would call me to tell me stuff about their wives, mm-hmm. whether it's like she's called in sick or something to do with her pay or some administration question, and I'd be like, I'm sorry, I can't speak to you, mm-hmm. I don't employ you. You can put the phone on to the person that I've employed. I can have the conversation with her
3: mm-hmm.
2: as politely and respectfully as I could. That doesn't happen anymore. But yeah, those are the challenges, I guess, from a female perspective. Yeah.
3: Okay. If you could go back and you could tell yourself one or two things now, what would that be?
2: Do more, actually. Because I kind of, I'm not slowing down now. If anything, we're like quadrupling everything we're doing. But I didn't have a kid at the start. I've got a kid now so that slows you down I wasn't married at the start you know being single there's nothing more powerful than being a single woman without a kid you are the most powerful person in the room because that is someone that has a lot of energy that is not having to be split by partners children that stuff all comes if you choose to if you want it and it's so interesting now that I look back and go why didn't I do more of that before I had to worry about family and stuff like that
3: yeah cool great way to end so guys can we have a round of applause Mini Latif of Ottoman 3
0: I so love how Minnie wanted to work in a palace when she was a little girl and she made that dream come true. Thanks, Minnie. We'll hear from Cara Bredmore right after these messages.
3: Master's Series is presented by We Teach Me. Women run the world of We Teach Me with creative and practical classes in locations across Australia. Learn what makes your heart sing at weteachme.com. This podcast is produced by Written and Recorded. It's time for females to start speaking up and disrupt the male-dominated podcasting world. Find out how to make your voice heard at writtenandrecorded.com. And now, back to the podcast.
0: Thanks, guy. Kara Bredmore was planning on a life in fashion until a transformative adventure revealed to her the wonders of jewellery. In 2005, she founded Kalua Jewellery and in this fireside chat with We Teach Me's Wayne Lewis, Cara says, If you don't look after number one, you won't be able to run a business. You need to invest in yourself to give back to your business.
1: We were really lucky growing up. We lived in a house where we were really encouraged to be thought leaders and to think outside the box. And I think in particular, even though it shouldn't have been this way in the sense of gender equality, we were exceptionally lucky that we had a father who really encouraged my sister and I as women to be anything that we wanted to be. And it didn't matter if you were a man or a woman. And it meant that I actually became one of the first Victorian Scouts, Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts and that was an amazing experience and I didn't even really realise it at the time that it was so forward thinking of my father to let me as a young girl be a Boy Scout or the first Girl Scouts and that experience definitely shaped my resilience and so many skills that I've taken into my business life. I'm exceptionally grateful to both of my parents for the upbringing that they gave us, but particularly reflecting on the opportunities that having a dad who was open-minded as a woman in business, which is a very hot topic now, the gender equality space. So I went to high school and I was always very into fashion design. And from there, I actually got into RMIT and did fashion design degree. But after about two years, I... I don't know, I was not 100% happy and unfortunately our parents were going through a very messy divorce. And I felt like I just needed to take a year, maybe like a gap year, but at the wrong year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was meant to be going into my final year to graduate. And I just needed a break, I needed to go and discover who I was and really find more out about myself as a young woman. So my, my friends and I bought a car for $800 And drove around Australia for a year, and it was the most remarkable year of my life. I always loved making little beaded necklaces. I had no idea how to do it. I just taught myself, and I took my box of beads and my wire and my pliers.
3: Were you selling them on the road? I was selling them on
1: the road. (laughs) Yep. I left Melbourne with $800 in my pocket for the year. I had no idea how, beyond that $800, I was going to survive. Yeah, it was a mind-blowing experience, but by the way, we broke down 70Ks out of Melbourne for the year, which was quite funny. These two blonde bombshells rocking to the petrol station. I remember saying to this guy in the mechanic shop, "Um, we've broken down and I think he just stared at me thinking, how on earth are you traveling around Australia? (laughs) And anyway, I turned to my girlfriend because the end of the trip was starting to loom near and the questions around, what am I going to do? Am I going to go back to uni? They all started creeping in I just remember saying to her, I was like, I wonder if you can study jewellery? And it just seemed like a really strange question that I'd never actually explored before. Anyway, to my parents' dismay, they were quite upset and had always been very supportive in everything that I'd done, but they were like, what are you doing? You've got one year of your course left. And, and RMIT Fashion and Design course, it's exceptionally hard to get into. Very sought after course, so they were, like you're mad and I didn't feel like I had their full support which was really hard and even my brother and sister also thought it was crazy so I felt quite alone in the decision to go into jewellery but that now has been an instrumental learning for me in my business that I've looked back and always back to myself and I think now I give my, my family the, the big like, you know, <laughs> I backed myself and I, and I made it because I listened to myself and even though you didn't think I was making a good decision, I'm really, really so pleased that I did. But it meant moving to Perth on my own without my family and any friends um, because I'd missed the intake into the jewellery course at RMIT, which I really wanted to get into. And at the time, I remember sitting in my first week of sawing metal and I literally was sitting at my desk crying because I was like what have I done Hmm. this is the worst thing in the world trying to hack into this metal with this tiny little saw frame but week by week everything went by and I just fell in love with the process of making jewelry and next thing I know I'm back in Melbourne and I'm applying for the RMIT course actually when I got off the plane I thought I'd better get a job and I looked in the newspaper, <laughs> yes, the newspaper, mm-hmm. who gets a job in the newspaper, and there was a job advertised that said, CBD jeweller requires assistant. And I'll never forget it because I was like, oh, great, big long description, I'll stuff it all, just fax my resume in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I did, and apparently 500 people applied for this job. And I ended up managing this business for 14 years while I ran my own business. And it was a hugely instrumental in my experience and my knowledge and working underneath Ronnie Bauer, who's exceptionally highly regarded in the jewellery industry, he definitely helped map and shape who I am today, and I'm exceptionally grateful for that. And it's probably only been in the last three years that I've really dug into my business to understand... Why do you literally wake up in the middle of the night and draw jewellery for people? Sometimes I literally do wake up in the middle of the night and my husband will be like, are you drawing again? And I'm <laughs> like, yes, I just have to draw it because I'm so worried I'll forget it in the morning. That's because I love it so much, but I never really questioned why I love it so much. So I've done a lot of exploring in the last three years because In a way, jewellery is quite materialistic and I don't think of myself as a materialistic person so I wanted to understand what my relationship was with my business and why I was so driven by this thing that is technically a luxury and materialistic. The words like brand identity and tone of voice and all these things didn't, like even four years ago, of course I knew they existed but they didn't really mean thing to me. I had essentially just been loving doing what i was doing and just doing it Mm -hmm. so it was really pleasurable experience for me to really unpack why i'm doing what i'm doing and what i discovered was the beautiful sparkly things that women love is definitely the reason i do what i do but it's not what drives me it's not what gets me out of bed every morning it's the connection i get to form with my customer and my client and the long term relationship I get to go through so many experiences with my clients because it's not a transaction for me. It's a lifetime relationship. It might start with an engagement ring, then go on to a wedding ring, and then it might go on to a push present or an eternity ring. And then it's, oh, it's my wife's birthday, and then, oh, she's turning. It's not just this one moment and it's one transaction. It's so much deeper. And whether people are consciously recognise it or not, jewellery is, it's very empowering for people to process what they're going through through a piece of jewellery so it could be a divorce or it could be their grandma's passed away and they want to redesign their piece into something else there's so many reasons that people embark on the journey to design a piece of jewellery and for me that's where the goodness lies and the part that really empowers me to want to empower them to heal or to grow or to love or to learn or to forgive or to say thank you, or to say sorry, there's so many reasons that jewellery comes into play. So it's been a really magical three or four years for me, really discovering why I am doing what I'm actually doing. So, yeah, and that's-
3: You're making my job very easy here, actually. Oh, sorry, so. did I just no, not stop
1: talking? No, you
3: can carry on, but <laughs> honestly, this is it's fascinating stuff, you're doing a great job, this is absolutely great to listen to. So, you talk about doing a little bit of soul searching and digging into the why of why you're in business and everything else. So. Now that you've put that in place, what is in front of you now, what are your main goals?
1: A lot of people assume that because I'm a jeweller that I have a jewellery store. Never say never, but I don't see me ever transitioning into opening a shop because what I try to encapsulate in every step of my business is an experience that people can't help but want to talk about, and I think retail and the shop fronts now really struggle with being able to execute that for people. So my space that I've recently launched and opened as an interactive workshop studio. It's an environment where people can come and visit me but also have experiences while they're there, quite unique ones. And I'm just in the process of designing a whole series of round the table dining and jewellery. Interactive experiences, but people actually come to the studio and it's more than just I've come to talk to you about a piece of jewellery I'm actually throwing them into saying here's a pool of gems You've got the freedom to play with them and turn it into anything that you like but into an interactive evening and I've got a lot of ideas around Wanting to create a blog that's focusing on my clients who are women I'm very passionate about empowerment of women and I want to call it the Maverick Women's Blog, and it's because so many of my clients that come to me are really, really impressive, powerful, amazing women who've got an incredible story to tell, and I want to tell that for them, especially because they've come via the channel of them being a client to me. So that's another thing, and I'm also about to roll out a ready-to-wear collection. Which is very exciting, but also very nerve wracking because, um, up until this point, everything that I've ever done has been around creating something for someone, and even though I'm still designing it for them, it's about them. Whereas, this is me putting my aesthetic and my design out there to the world with no reason for it, and so. There's a little part of me that's like, oh, what if they don't like it? (laughs) But I just can't know that I haven't tried in my life to achieve this thing that I really wanna do, which is to have a online store where people can purchase and take a precious piece of Kahlua and own it, but they don't have to necessarily go through the whole process of the custom design experience. So yeah, that's a few things that are in the pipeline. Yeah,
3: exactly. So was that always a grand vision?
1: No, I think this is what my vision of business is. I don't have a vision of becoming a multi-millionaire. Of course you need money, and of course money is important, but it's not what drives me, it's not what drives my business. For me, it's about looking back and saying, my business stood for something that was bigger than the sparkly materialistic things. It's about the journey, it's about the opportunity that every day meeting people, it's so much more than that. And I just want to look back and know that I've injected that into my business essentially.
3: How do you look after yourself? Are there any moments where things get on top? What do you do to invest in yourself emotionally?
1: I had such an awakening to this in the last few years. Unfortunately, our mother went through a very difficult time and it really made me look into myself in terms of my mental health and my well-being. And I honestly believe everything starts at the top with you in business. If you are not looking after you, number one, then you will never be able to operate a business the best that you possibly can if you're not. So I make a really conscious effort now to always make time for myself every day. I don't nail it every day. There are some times my husband who definitely attest to that. But I am so much better than what I used to be and realising that going for a walk and taking 15 minutes to myself and all the whole time I used to be like, oh my God, I haven't got time for this, I haven't got time for to walk, I haven't got time. I'm like, just stop. Just take the time because you're actually investing back into your business by looking after yourself. I started doing yoga, which I don't really do regularly anymore, but I definitely, when I turned to yoga, it had such a, an awakening experience for me to really connect with myself and to what matters. And your well-being is so important in business. And yeah, I go to the gym and do all those things that are really important. My husband and I recently moved near the beach and it was a really concentrated decision because even though we could have got a bigger house out further, I wanted to be by the ocean so we could get up in the morning and have that lifestyle and just make sure that you take time to go for a walk and look after yourselves because bigger picture, we all can wake up one day when we've just worked way too hard and way too fast and what was it all for? You work hard and then you become sick, yeah, so. I'm actually about to go on a wellness retreat, which I'm really excited about, <laughs> to Fiji. It is for entrepreneurs, so it is about work skills.
3: Guys, can we have a round of applause for Kara Bredmore of The Lodge Jewelry?
0: So Cara's vision isn't to be a multi-millionaire, I really love that. She wants to look back and know that her business stood for more than just the shiny things. Thanks Cara, and thank you Minnie as well. Next time on Masters Series, how to jumpstart your business. If you've been sitting on your idea for a startup, you won't want to miss this. We'll hear from two successful founders about the steps they took to get their business up and running. Until then, I'm Salfa Shenalmish from Written and Recorded and for We Teach Me, this is the Masters Series.